Church family, it's good to see you this morning. Glad to have you with us. Um, we're going to look after this, something to look after at the back in our ushers. Um, I'm going to shift this backwards so that I don't trip over them and you don't get to have the exciting moment of Jeremy falling on his face mid-service. Sarah, I know you'd like it. I know you'd appreciate it. It'd be a memorable moment in the church. Uh, before I get to shift into our message, just have a couple of brief things to share with you, some family business stuff. It's exciting. Um, it was a few weeks ago that we had our baptism service. We saw 10 people baptized into the Christian faith, and it was, a, I, I, it was wonderful, wonderful to hear their stories, uh, wonderful to have our whole church together. And some of you, I'm sure, were here for that and um, felt the sense of, I, I haven't done this yet. There's something missing in my life. I haven't gone through this process of being baptized into the Christian faith, and I uh, want to invite you to seriously consider that as an act of obedience to Jesus. Um, the next time we run a baptism class will be in January, so not in the fall, but in January. And you're welcome to sign up now for that if that's what you'd like to do, uh, but we've got some time to make that happen. Now, the reason it's happening in January is because starting in the fall on my kind of Friday night teaching slot, I'm going to be teaching through the book of Romans. So we've got... Uh, we'll do a Friday night Bible study where we go through probably the first 11 chapters of Romans because 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 don't matter. A, no, I don't mean that. Uh, so we'll look at just those first, uh, those first chapters of Romans because that's Paul's argument, but that's going to be in the fall. Now also, family business, um, many of you have been asking me about membership and when we're going to take in new members, um, and you can mark your calendars now if you'd like for, for the Saturday, September the 30th. Uh, will be our membership class day. Probably about from nine till one. Lunch will be included. We'll have time uh, to go through these things. But that's our next kind of member intake. And I know there's a bunch of people who've been asking me, and I just throw that out there. You can put it in your calendar now. We're at September. Who cares about September? We're not even through August yet. Well, I have to care. And that's where we're looking at these things. So those are just those few brief... It's the Lord telling me to shut up. No. Um, I have, I've had no news yet from Zambia. I'm not sure if any of you have. Um, I've, as far as I know, the team has arrived. I know they're kind of in a region where there's not a lot of, of internet communication, so they're pretty remote. So it's not surprising we haven't heard from them yet. Uh, and so we will share things as we receive them. As we get some photos and information, we'll share them on our church Facebook page. And you, of course, are invited to um, join that page and see those things as they come up. Okay, we are in a series on characters in the New Testament. This has been our summer series. We've gone through a bunch of, we're kind of on the B list of characters. We've not done A list characters. We've done uh, some of the less, lesser known or lesser observed characters. And today's character is Joseph, Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. And we read about him in really in chap Matthew chapters one and two. And where I want us to land is I think Joseph is going to show us something about what it means to be a godly man. I think that's what we're going to get today out of this. And I'll try and show you what that looks like. But let's read our text. It's three passages. I'm going to read Matthew 1, 18 to 25, 2, 13 through 15, and 2, 19 to 23. You've got those on your notes if you have the notes. Uh, but let me read those for us now. Let's begin Matthew chapter 1. It's a pretty familiar story. I'll begin reading at verse 18. Matthew writes, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. 
But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his deep sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Now we're going to skip through uh, the visit of the Magi. Remember, the Magi come from a far away. They talk to Herod. Herod finds out there's a king coming. Herod gets kind of bothered by this. And we pick up the story at verse 13. The Magi have just left. Now verse 13. Now when they had gone, the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So... Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, Herod, bad guy that he is, ends up killing some babies. This is a terrible story. And so, uh, but then Herod eventually dies. And I think I said we'd pick up at verse 19. So here's verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. You notice a pattern? Okay. The pin a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, by and large, these are the, what almost all we know about Joseph comes from these passages in early Matthew. There's a few uh, duplicates in Luke and some other places, but this is most of the stuff we get about Joseph. He apparently was a guy who had a lot of, he was a dreamer, he had a lot of dreams, and he heard from the Lord in these moments. And we get to talk about these things in a minute. But I want us to begin by thinking about why, why does this get us to godly manhood? Like, how does this story about Joseph get us to this space. And maybe I've got to set the stage just a little bit, because I think the question of what makes a man is pretty confused today. I don't think we're terribly sure about what makes men to be men. I mean, it used to be, it used to be pretty clear that it was your biology, right, that made you a man or a woman. And today, uh, this is in some question, isn't it, about what defines us in these things. Uh, and so, but even preceding that, there were kind of, uh, there were troubles. Um, and I don't know if you've been aware of it, but for the past 30 years or so, maybe even 50 years, there's been a kind of sustained uh, contempt and attack on men and on fatherhood. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, maybe let's play a little thought experiment. Can you think of a single father on television who is an upright man of good character, who has a noble heart? Is it even conceivable? Maybe, you know, the most prominent father, the, the longest, the longest imaged father on television right now is Homer Simpson, okay? Think about that. Over 30 years, Homer Simpson has been representing fatherhood on television. 
the, the, <laughs> long ago. Um, one of the things I learned about The Simpsons years ago is that when the show first began, maybe you're not Simpsons fans, and that's okay if you're not. When the show began, the focus was on Bart being a brat. In fact, his name, Bart, was an anagram for brat, okay, B-A-R-T, B-R-A-T. That was the joke. Remember the, remember the t-shirts, have a, don't have a cow man? And he was like, he was, a, he was the jerk, and that was the focus of the show. And very quickly, they realized that things were much funnier if Homer was the idiot, okay? And so they retooled the entire show around Homer being stupid, and then it took off. And there's a kind of cultural-wide acceptance that we can laugh at fathers, and we can make fun of fatherhood, but it's come at a kind of cost, hasn't it? What does it mean to look up to people? What does it mean to have godly men in your life? And so we get some funny things happen. I think manhood gets externalized, right? Like what makes you a man is external things, like your portfolio, right? You're a man. Or like, have you seen guys who are really, re I'm, I'm sorry if any of you work out, really muscular, right? Like it's all like my muscles make, and if you ask them to help you move, they don't, right? Their muscles don't do any good because it interrupts their workouts, Right? They're focused on being cut and not on being useful. I'm sorry if that's, I'm not, um, right? It's funny. It's funny how these things become um, externalized or, or toys, right? Men, uh, men get focused on things like their toys, right? It's the, it's the car I have or the size of spoiler or my rims, right? Or it's the boat I own, right? Men become identified by their toys. Timothy Toolman Taylor, right? It's all about stress. Or is it a beard? Right? This is Abraham Lincoln's words. There's a name for people without beards, women. Okay? And so now I judge you because I have a beard, and I'm sorry, you don't have a beard. Not a man. Craig, Tim, you can't serve on the board anymore. You're not even a man. Right? But you see how ridiculous it becomes. It's all external things. What's the internal stuff that makes you a man? And I think this is one of the crises we face as a culture right now in these ways. And I think a couple things we have to keep in mind is that manhood is something that is often taught. It's role modeled. We learn to be men by seeing other men be men. And there's not a great track record in history. I mean, humans are pretty bad uh, at this kind of stuff. So who do we get to look up to in these moments? Who will teach us? Well, this brings us back to our text. Um, let's think about this for a minute. God chose Mary to be his earthly mother. And in church tradition, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's utterly amazing, the incarnation and what Mary got to do by having the life of Jesus within her. But God also chose Joseph to be his earthly father. And he's kind of forgotten, right, as a character in the Bible. Mary gets all the credit, and Joseph's like, yeah, he's just some guy. But there's something, I think, worth looking at. He's an incredibly special person. So uh, let's remember this. God chose Joseph to be his earthly father. This means he was a pretty special person. Uh, when I look through my Bible, I see that most Bible characters are really mixed people. In fact, there are very few heroes, right? You don't get like, be like Moses, murder someone, okay? That's not so good, right? Be like David, adultery, okay? This is... The Bible figures are not heroes. This is one of the things we make a mistake about. You know, people, people talk about, have you seen all the bad things in the Bible? And you're like, well, it's not a manual for, like, how to be good in that way, right? People are there not always as positive examples. Many times they're there as examples for how we're not supposed to be. And you know what I find? I think Joseph is one of the few actually good people in the Bible. 
He's one of the few people, and maybe that's why he has such a narrow screen time. If he had more time, we'd find out he wasn't so good. But this is, this is good for us. And so let's look at his story, and then I want to draw some lessons for godly manhood for us. Okay? So let's talk about the character of Joseph for a moment. What do we know about Joseph, son of Jacob? Well, that's the first thing we know. We know his dad's name. He's Joseph. His father is, was Jacob. Um, from Matthew chapter 1, what I didn't read, we know that he could trace his family line back to David. He's in the Davidic line. Right? So his, I didn't work out the greats, but he's like his great, 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 great grandfather or something like that was David. And he has a sense of probably family pride in this, a sense of belonging, a sense of we are special because of these things. Hey, a few weeks ago, I talked about how the tribes, when they went into exile, talked about when the tribes went into exile, they all, they, they became an amalgamate. They lo- there are no Naphtalites after the exile. There are no Danites. There are no, uh, we've lost the tribes for the most part. But uh, the southern tribes were able to retain some of their identity. So there were still people of the tribe of Judah, like David's people, and there were still Benjamites, because Saul in the New Testament says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and there were a few Levites left over. They still had some uh, tribal identity in these places. Those records are are really shady these days, uh, but they were still around a little bit. What do we know about Joseph? He's engaged to marry this young woman named Mary. Now, uh, you got to think engagement, probably brokered by family. Go back to Fiddler on the Roof. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. That's Mary singing, and she gets Joseph. And is she happy? I don't know. But um, that's the story. Probably some kind of brokered engagement by some external party who made this happen. Now, engagement in the ancient world was very serious. If you wanted to break an engagement, you had to procure a divorce, okay? Which means engagement was very serious. It was a high-level commitment. And so um, this engagement had been brokered by families. Everybody knows what's going on. It's not like Joseph and Mary got together and said, we're going to get married. It's more like their families have already made this arrangement. So breaking the engagement involves breaking families at that point as well. So high levels of commitment in these things. Now, traditionally, I won't read the passage, but Matthew 13, 35 says, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph the carpenter? And traditionally, he's been given the job of carpentry, right? And the Greek word for this is called the tectone. It's an interesting word, tectone. Um, And this has led to all sorts of romance, right? About Jesus crafting wood and Jesus doing all sorts of things with his hands and, you know, being this kind of like he's, he's in his workshop. Maybe you've seen some of those kind of romantic photos or image, uh, not photos, there's no photos, romantic paintings with Jesus and his father doing work together in their dad's workshop, right? There's a problem and that, that whatever we think of as carpentry probably wasn't the case in the ancient world. In fact, this word tectone probably could also mean something like stonecutter which means that instead of being a a skilled tradesman, Joseph might have been someone who worked in the quarries, which means that Jesus might have been a day laborer. This kind of changes the image a little bit, doesn't it, in some ways? But it makes sense of a couple things. Remember the parable when Jesus says, he talks about people getting their wage for a day's work? They received their denarius for a day's work? Suddenly it sounds like maybe this is something Jesus himself has done. He's received his wage. Or remember the start where Jesus says, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? If he speaks as a builder, he knows what he's talking about in these ways. Otherwise, there's no references in any of his teaching to this kind of work that we've tied to Jesus. Anyway, you don't have to follow this. It's okay. I think it's just really interesting to see who Joseph was and what kind of work he did and what kind of labor we think was was tied to him. 
we learn that Joseph is an upright character. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 again. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Okay? So he learns that Mary is expecting. Uh, he knows how babies come into the world. He's aware that, oh, I'm not responsible, someone else is, okay? And he begins to work on the logic of how this does. And he has every right at this moment, every right to shame her publicly. Every right to say, I didn't do this, someone else was responsible, I'm divorcing her because she's been unfaithful to me. He has the right to do this, but he chooses not to. It says he chooses to divorce, to put her away quietly. Again, the engagement requires divorce, and so he's going to go through this process and do it in a way that doesn't shame her. Now, Matthew is explicit. Joseph is a righteous man, being a righteous man, and he shows his righteousness by not disgracing Mary publicly. That's really interesting. And there's a couple ways we look at this righteousness. Righteousness, one, he's a righteous guy. He wants an upright marriage. He doesn't want to marry someone who's unfaithful. That's perfectly reasonable. But then he shows his righteousness in the second way. He doesn't believe we get justice by naming and shaming the offender, which is maybe a lesson we could learn today from Joseph. You don't make things right by humiliating people publicly. There's better ways to go about it. Okay? So, he wakes up from his dream. He has the dream from the angel. We, hear, we know that he's a dreamer. He receives four dreams in the text uh, for these things. He receives words from the Lord. He wakes up from his dream, and he takes Mary as his wife on the spot. Okay? Now, this is interesting as well, because taking Mary as his wife means that he let strangers think that he was the father of the baby, which means that people looked at him and thought, oh, Joseph, couldn't keep your hands off Mary, could you? And he takes that on. All right. I'll take on the shame of your slander and of how this looks to me. Now, if he has a public marriage, they have a wedding, it means that everybody in the town and village has to accept not only Mary, but the baby as well, right? Now there's a kind of public festival that means socially this child is accepted, and ultimately what this means is that he looks like the indiscreet character rather than Mary, and he takes on her shame to protect her and the baby. Pretty noble action in these moments. Uh, verse 25, I won't read it right now. We learn that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. That word until will be alarming to you if you grew up in a Catholic background. Until, uh, which means that there were other children that Mary had after this event by her, uh, by her marriage with Joseph. And we'll talk about those in a minute. So four times the angel of the Lord approaches Joseph in a dream, and uh, in each of those times he obeys immediately. So the angel says, I want you to marry Mary, okay? I want you to name the baby Jesus, okay? I want you to flee to Egypt, okay? I want you to go back to Israel, okay? And I need you to go a little different place in Israel. So there's a kind of tasking going on, and Joseph says, okay, all these times. Now these are the events of early Matthew, and after these he kind of fades away. He kind of vanishes from history. Um, and very likely, in the church tradition, we think he dies an early death. So before Jesus comes onto the ministry scene in about 30 years, Joseph has sometime at some expired between then at this point. Now, uh, we, get, we know that Jesus has half-siblings, so your book of James in the Bible is written by Jesus' half-brother, so another child of Mary in these moments, uh, and not James the apostle, a different James. 
And we find out that that James is also head of the church in Jerusalem. It's interesting, the kind of history of who these people are. But we also know from the Scriptures, we can infer that Jesus was the oldest sibling because he's head of the family. We can know he's head of the family for two reasons. One, he moves the family from Nazareth to Capernaum, and the family moves with him. Only the head of household moves, and the whole household moves with him in these moments. And that's kind of what's happening with Jesus. And then when Jesus is on the cross, do you remember there's a moment in John's gospel where he's, uh, he's dying on the cross, and John and his mother are at the foot of the cross, and he says to John, John, behold your mother. And he says to Mary, Mary, mother, behold your son. And what he's doing is he's giving the care of his mother over to his best friend. Now, if Jesus is not the oldest sibling, if there are older children other than him, then they're already going to look after Mary. So this means Jesus is the oldest, which again implies that, that Joseph and Mary have had these other half-siblings that are Jesus' younger, younger brothers and sisters. Interesting stuff. Okay? So, as I said a moment ago, we should remember that God chose Joseph as well as Mary. And to put it more precisely, when God the Father sent Jesus into our world, he chose Joseph to protect and parent his son. He chose this guy. I need a father for my son on earth, and I want Joseph to be that person. It's pretty exciting for Joseph to be chosen in this way. And so I think he's a figure worthy for us to look at as someone of godly manhood. So uh, I'm going to highlight five features that I think Joseph shows us about godly manhood. Are these the only five features of godly manhood? No. No. There's much more to say. Are these exclusively for men? No. No, not at all. These are things that are, uh, apply to all, all of us as Christians. But I want to propose to you that if we are going to be godly men, if we are going to be upright men, then these five things we're going to need to get us on the right track. So uh, let's dig into these. So number one, the godly man, the godly man listens to God's voice. The godly man listens to God's voice. Uh, three times on record, God speaks directly to Joseph. I mean, four, four dreams, but three times you hear the angel of the Lord's voice. Uh, you know, lots of us have dreams. All, I don't remember my dreams a lot. My wife remembers all of her dreams and likes to tell me about them. And, you know, this is interesting. I, some, of you, some of you probably have vivid dreams, and some of you are like me, and you sleep the sleep of blissful ignorance, right, all the time. Uh, I don't know which you are, but that's okay. We have dreams. But Joseph, uh, very few of those dreams are from God. Very, let's be fair. Very few dreams we have are messages directly from the angel of the Lord implanting thoughts in our minds. That's, that's a rare experience. But what's interesting is that Joseph knows what, enough of what God's voice sounds like to be able to filter out the angel of the Lord from his dreams. He knows. He's listening in a very key way. And this tells us that he was already ready to hear. Maybe even he was anticipating hearing from God. And that's a good question. Are you anticipating hearing from God? Not necessarily in dreams, but at any moment. Are you listening in anticipation for him to speak? And if he spoke to you, are you familiar enough with his voice that you could recognize it? Do you know what he sounds like? I sometimes people ask me about knowing what God's, how do you know what God's voice sounds like? Well, you can become familiar with it by reading his book. And then you will not be surprised. You'll have, you'll have a kind of measure for knowing, oh, this sounds like him or oh, no, this does not sound like him. And you'll know these things. Here's an example for you, or a way to think about it. Imagine someone coming to you and saying, or someone coming to me and saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to start listening to Mozart. I'm really excited. I say, I'll say, great. I'm excited for you to hear Mozart. Where are you going to start? You start with symphony, the 40th symphony, or the marriage of Figaro, or the magic flute? Like, what are you going to go with, right? 
And imagine the person saying to me, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to any of that stuff. I'll just listen to music and I'll know it when I hear it. Really? Out of all the music you're going to hear, you're going to know Mozart when you hear it. Don't you begin by listening to Mozart and then discerning what Mozart sounds like. And then you hear other things. You say, man, this sounds a lot like Mozart. It's the same with the voice of God. And I think some people approach discerning God's voice with saying, I'm not going to read God's word or study God's people or know anything about it. I'll know it when I hear it. I think, will you really? I'm not so sure. So if we're listening for God's voice, we're also learning what his voice sounds like so we can hear it. So a prerequisite to being someone who listens for God's voice is someone who studies God's word, right? Now, if God's already speaking, are you paying attention to him or ignoring him. This leads to the second feature of godly manhood, which is the godly man obeys God's commands. You listen for God's voice, but then you obey the commands. God gives Joseph some pretty demanding tasks. In these two, these really short passages, he gets some high standards. Take a woman to be your wife who is carrying a child that's not your child. That's high, high demand, high level. Name the child Jesus. You go back through the family records, that's not really a family name. That's something a little different. Uh, uproot your family and move to Egypt, a hostile country, right? Get up and move. Uh, uproot your family again and then move back to some other assembly hostile place and then move to a different city altogether. Joseph does all these things, many of which are just simply illogical. Imagine a conversation with his friend. Hey, Joseph, are you moving? Yep. Why are you doing that? Well, I had this dream. An angel of the Lord came to me. Uh, I, I'm, not so, I'm not sure that Joseph's friends would be sympathetic to that argument either. You're going to do what? You're going to leave everything and move because of a dream? Well, it's the Lord, right? And I know His voice, and I need to obey it when it comes to me. And this is why we really do have to know His voice. You need to be sure that it's Him you're obeying if He's asking you to obey in radical ways and not your appetite or your own deception or other things. You need to know that it's God. Now, it's also important to note that obedience always leads to obedience, Saying yes to God about Mary led to saying yes to God about moving family. And that tells me that Joseph had a habit of obedience that preceded the angels speaking to him. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I expect some of you are thinking, uh, something like this. I would obey God if he were really clear, right? If he were really clear, if he spoke to me in a dream, I guarantee I'd obey him in these moments. I'm not so sure that you would. I'm not so sure that you would. Um, and here's the catch. Hasn't he already spoken to you in his word? How are you doing with the obedience that's already pretty clear from the book? And if you're not going to obey in these very clear ways, why do you think that more clarity is going to help? It's not, is it? But if you want to be obedient in a big way, you need to start being obedient in some smaller ways, right? How are you doing at seeking the Lord's face? pursuing him in your life and in your relationships? How are you at treating the people around you justly? How are you at loving the weak and caring for the stranger? These things are pretty clear. And if we're not doing them, why do we think that God's going to give you a bigger task in these things? I don't think he will. I don't think he will. So part of obeying God is practicing habits of ordinary obedience. And godly man obeys God, but we obey in small ways on the way to obeying in bigger ways, okay? So third thing, 
Third thing is the godly man bears burdens for others. This is not the most clear phrase, but it's actually terribly, terribly important. It means that the godly man uses your God-given strength to help others in need. You use your God-given strength to help others in need. One of the things I think we must admit as men is that we do have strength. We can take things, right? We can rob and pillage and worse. We have power. And that power in some ways is a trust to us, and therefore we must use it in godly ways. It's not about denying the power. It's about saying, acknowledging it and then saying, this power must serve God and not me. And the power shows up in bearing burdens for others. So how does Joseph use his strength? How does he bear burdens? Well, first, we talked about this already, but it's worth highlighting again. He bears the burden of Mary's shame. He bears that he, his strength becomes a protection around Mary. And that's a burden he carries. This is not like the burdens we're thinking of, is it? Carrying the shame of another person. Pregnancy out of woodlock has almost never in human history been a good thing. And so by taking Mary to be wife, he implies that he's the one who got her with child. He takes the blame. He covers her shame. His strength ensures that the infant Jesus will be, in, will be embraced by the community as well. He's looking. It's, it's more than one person. There's a knock-on effect of this. And then he takes on the care and provision for a child that isn't his own. Right? It looks like just one little passage in the scriptures, right? Take Mary to be your wife. But it's actually every day from that point on, he is looking after a child that isn't his, and he knows it. He's feeding, he's caring, he's providing, he's doing the work necessary. And that's an embrace that's pretty profound. Okay? It looks like one time, but it's actually lifelong. Men have been given strength by God, and we can use our strength to take from others or to serve. We can use our strength to get ahead or to bring others up. And when we bring others up, when we serve, it means that our strength is in the service of a kind of burden bearing. We are carrying one another for the sake of God's glory. Uh, this burden is part of our duty as Christians. Look with me at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes these words. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The bearing of one another's burdens is that if your brother or sister in the church falls into sin, you are eager to carry them back into the Father's presence. It's not a matter of naming and shaming, not a matter of highlighting their sin and saying, oh, look what you did, I can't believe it, put your face on the screen, you know, adulterer face, you know, <gasps> right? Okay, no, our, we are, our strength serves restoration to the life of God, not the destruction of other people. It's interesting, no more than interesting, it's powerful. So, we find a way with dignity to bear burdens. Fourth feature of the godly man, godly man protects the weak. In taking up the burden of Joseph, of Mary and Jesus, Joseph becomes their chief protector. And this is what leads to their flight to Egypt, uproots from relationships and family and work. When God chose someone to protect his earthly son, he chose, or some, his, the, the son, he chose Joseph as a protector. It's interesting. Now, don't miss this. Joseph manifests his protection by running away, right? That's how he shows his protection. He runs away which is a viable option, okay? Now, think about this. He's, he's in the Davidic line. He knows in recent memory that there have been people rising up to claim to be the Messiah. He's sitting here. He's just heard from an angel that this child is the one who's going to save his people. 
I bet he's thinking, I, could ima- I don't bet he's thinking. I, he could, I can imagine him thinking, hey, I bet we could raise an army. We could raise an army around this child. We could have a rebellion. We could fight back. We've got a fighting chance. And if he was a zealous, ambitious guy for national Israel, those would be some of the thoughts he has. But he says, no, uh, discretion is the better part of valor. I'm getting out of here, right? And so his protection takes the form of flight. And this means he lays aside pride. This is an important aside. Where is pride in manhood? Where does it fall? Well, we use the word pride in two different ways, right? Two really important different ways. Like you take pride in your appearance, and that's okay, right? And you take pride in your, maybe if you've got kids, you take pride in your kids. If you've got siblings, maybe you take pride in your little brother or big brother, right? You know it. It's okay. It's okay to have a sense of like, I, I'm so excited. I love you, and I'm excited for you. And there's something joyful about watching you do what you do. And there's kind of good pride. Uh, you take pride in your work, right? Because it represents you and who you are. No, I'm going I'm to invest in this because it's important. But where we don't is we don't allow, we don't think we're better than others. There's a word for this. It's superbia. That's the old word for pride. It means I'm, I'm above you. I'm higher than you. I'm better than you, right? If you take pride in your kids in order to show how my kids are better than your kids, eh, now we're in the dangerous side of pride, right? And it, show, it shifts so easily. And so we don't allow our sense of what we deserve, of how good we are, to stand in obstruction of how we're called to serve others right? If I think to myself, I'm too important to do that, now I'm too high up, right? That's not the right use of who I am. So, how do I want to summarize this? Godly manhood protects through self-sacrifice, not through self-promotion. Protection comes through self-sacrifice, not through self-promotion, right? The godly man isn't out to be a hero. The godly man is out to serve, recognizes his strength as a gift from God, and that one day he will answer to God Almighty for how he's used his strength. Let me come to the final point this morning, which is, I think, the godly man adopts the lost. The godly man adopts. Um, And this is terribly important, probably the most important thing. Godly man adopts people. Um, The Father's love for us, and I'm going to pause and say some maybe semi-theological, well, they're all theological, but say some things that are especially theological for you. The love of God the Father for us, His children, is an adoptive love. And that, by that I mean it's a love that He chooses to love. He makes a choice to love people who many of us, I'm sorry, not many, we are all in our own way unlovable. And God chooses to love us despite how unlovable we are. I've watched something happen four times in my life. I've watched four of my children uh, be born, and I've watched my wife nurse and care for all four of those children over the years, and it's amazing to watch what happens. Uh, while she nurses, do you know there's a, there's a chemical release from the mother and the child while you nurse called oxytocin, right? It's a love chemical, and it means that every time my wife nursed one of her children, she got addicted to the baby, and the baby got addicted to her, Right? And so there's a sense of like well-being and glow. And you've guys seen a baby after nursing and they're like, right? It's drugs. <laughs> it's, and, and they're becoming addicted and connected to one another in this profound way. And so one of the things I learned, I learned that, wow, my wife, is a, my wife in some ways, she, she also chooses, she does love, really love, but she's, she's hardwired to love our kids in a way that I am not. And in some ways, I am always choosing to love my kids. Now, it's not a terribly hard choice to love them, but I am choosing. And I realize this is one of the reasons why God is our Father. 
He doesn't love us because he's forced to love us by some biochemical reaction. He loves us because he chooses to love us. This is the adoptive love of God, and it's profound. And God has given to each of us a ministry of adoption whereby we get to look around and say, who needs to be loved? And this is where you will be most manly in the image of God, by choosing to love people around you. So here's the challenge I give to you. Each of you have wanted to be loved by others, right? But you men look around and look to yourselves and say, who needs to be loved in this space? Who needs to be adopted with love? Who needs to be partnered with and carried alongside? Who needs to be, and maybe the Lord is speaking to you, who needs to learn how to listen to God's voice and to obey what God is doing? And who needs to learn how to carry one another and how to be protected? And there's something really quite wonderful and profound that can happen in this. And the spirit of Joseph can manifest with power in our midst in these ways. Um, I want to read, um, as we shift into a time of, of communion, I want to read a passage from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. It won't be on the screen um, for you, uh, but this is what Paul says. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation in the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And I'll stop there. The sacrifice of Jesus extends the adopting love of God to us so that we become children of God, accepted, loved. God covers our shame. God embraces us as his people. God protects us self-sacrificially. This is God the Father extending his love to us, and we get to be like that Father toward one another. I would like to invite our musicians to come and take their spaces on our platform. I'm going to invite our communion servers also to come forward and help me as we get ready um, for this, this feast. Let me explain some of the pieces, and then I'll talk about what we're doing again here, okay? Uh, in a moment, we're going to sing some songs, um, and um, please go ahead. Um, you're going to come forward as you're ready, and the server is going to tear a piece of bread and, uh, uh, and place it in your hand and say, this is the body of Christ which is given for you. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed by suffering and death, he took bread and he gave his disciples the bread and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And so we're remembering that Jesus did something profound and binds us together with him. Okay? And then you're going to take it and the person with the cup will be next to you and you can dip it in the cup and they'll say, this is the blood of Christ which is poured out or shed for you. Because of course Jesus died for us and came back to life. And now what you're doing when you're eating it is interesting. I mean, you're tasting juice and bread, and something tangible on your tongue that reminds you that God has done something for you. But you're being reminded that first, uh, that, that there is one loaf of uh, the life of Jesus, and we are all participants in it. And there's one blood that's poured out for salvation, and we are, if there is salvation, we are covered by that salvation and what makes us God's people. Um, and this is a powerful reminder and a declaration that you are part of the work that Jesus did on the cross, um, and that he is covering you with his protection. 
Uh, if for some reason you don't feel fit to take this meal today, I encourage you to come forward and receive a blessing. Uh, and we will pray for you. Just, you can just cross your arms and say, and that does, it means you don't have to take from the elements, but we can bless you in that moment. Last piece of details. In the center section here, we have some gluten-free crackers and a separate cup. Um, if that's need, uh, you're welcome to come to this space. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then as you're ready, you can come forward for communion. Will you bow your heads? Lord Jesus Christ, you've given your life for us. I thank you for the example of your earthly father, Joseph, and I pray that he and his spirit of life can teach us and can inform us how to be godly men, how to use our strength for the service of your people. Bless us now as we draw near to you and meet us in this feast. I pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.